Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week, we're excited to have the Washington Post national security correspondent, Shane Harris, who's going to discuss his explosive report that Donald Trump as an ex-president could reveal, maybe even sell, our national secrets. Then longtime Democratic consultant Chris Hutton is coming on to tell us about how the Super Bowl of Senate elections otherwise known as the two January 6th Georgia elections, how it's going to go. It's going to be a good show. Remember, we take your questions each episode, so write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, and this episode is sponsored by Magic Spoon. Please check out the link on the show notes, and we thank them for the support of the podcast. And thank all of you for listening today. Please tell your friends and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. James Carville, how are you? Well, I'm good. I mean, you know, just uh, like anxious to hear from our guest today. And uh, the Chain Harris story, you're right, was just t- totally explosive. I think mean, it's one of the biggest post uh, election stories I've ever seen. And Chris Hutton is a, he knows Georgia. He really knows it well. So figure out if the Democrats are going to win there, what do they have to do and where do they have to do it? Very very curious. We got a lot to talk about. I want to start off. This is a little bit Georgia, but it's really all over the country. The Republicans are doing everything they can to steal this election. I really mean it. Steal this election. Uh, I mean, Wayne County, Detroit, where they were forced to back down after refusing to certify uh, the vote. I mean, James, what they were going to, what they were attempting to do was say, okay, we'll count the rest of Michigan, but we're not going to count the big city of Detroit with its predominant uh, black uh, <laughs> community. Uh, Pennsylvania, they're coming up with stories that are so embarrassing. They're having Republican judges make fun of them. Uh, Lindsey Graham is all over the country and lying about what he's doing. Uh, they're not going to get away with any of this, but what they're trying to do is just stir up the masses. And uh, it's really quite <laughs> ugly. Yeah, I mean, it's point that we made before the election, not enough to win. I mean, I was obviously, like a lot of people, I was hoping we'd win by more. But it's going to fall somewhere between four and five points. Um, some people think it might be closer to five. And the margins in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Dickon were insufficiently close. But could you imagine what would happen if they were really tight and you didn't have Georgia and Arizona in the mixture. I mean, no telling what they would have done. I mean, they would have stolen this election. I mean, it would Biden won by enough that they can't do it. But it's really frightening to think what would have happened instead of winning. You know, if he'd be two and a half points ahead right now, and those margins would be close, they would have stolen. I have no no doubt about that. But it's you know, I mean, the election, and you stop and you think about it, you look at it's not particularly close. No, and even you look at Pennsylvania, and Biden won Pennsylvania. It's now over 80,000. It may climb a little bit. Uh, Trump won it last time by, I I think I'm right, 43,000. And no one was saying, that's too close. It was fraud. There was something that that, uh, went wrong. Uh, Let's redo it. Uh, This is, it's it's so fraudulent. And and I'm just stunned. I'm just stunned. The two of the Senate perpetrators of this. You know, I'm not really stunned, but I want to say that anyway. Are Lindsey Graham, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, and Ted Cruz, a former Supreme Court clerk, 
to both of them, the rule of law means nothing. Uh, and Lindsey Graham started off, he tried to interfere with the Georgia Secretary of State. He got caught. Give the guy a lot of credit for that. Uh, and then he said, well, I talked to the Nevada and I talked to the Arizona Secretary of State. No, you didn't, Lindsey. I'm sorry. And they said you didn't. Well, I was mistaken. No, you weren't mistaken. You lied. I, I mean, look, he... He's a guy that he's got reelected. He's got a six-year term. He obviously, it, I think, has fun making a fool of himself. I mean, I, I really don't understand it. I've, I've oh, been wow. around him a couple of times. He seems like a perfectly normal, polite human being. And I, I think it, at some point, a lot of these guys just cross some kind of Rubicon of self-awareness. But generally, people don't like to be publicly humiliated it it he seems to to just try to get more of it i it, i really don't understand it, it it's it, it, then i can understand that people are scared of trump and you know they want to be judicious and careful you know uh but jesus this guy's like he just keeps stepping on it and it looks like he just looks for another place to make a fool of himself yeah uh it it never ends uh, Biden, so far, he's made some important White House appointments. A cabinet's coming up soon. Uh, he, what do you think of the tone he's striking? You know, if we have said this a thousand times. Is Joe Biden is exactly who you think he is. You know, if you're looking to be surprised, you're you're going to be you're not going to be surprised. And I mean, I think that the people that he has picked, I, I know most of them. They're all very close, longtime allies and staffers for, for the president-elect. They're all solid people. Uh, I, I mean, this is not going to be like the new frontier, the new deal, where there's a lot of new people come in. But, maybe, you know, that's what he ran on. That's who he is. Uh, that's obviously the way that he's going to govern. And, boy, I'm, am I looking forward to that over what we have. <laughs> wow. Wow. But, yeah. you know, it, 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 so far, everything that he's done has been predictable. And I don't say that critically. All right. I just want to be careful. I'm not being critical. It's just a fact that, and, you know, you know him well. You've known him over the years. You know, I know him pretty good. And, but there's nothing about the president-elect that is surprising so far. I mean, there's no appointment to go, God, I can't, can't believe you put that person in there. Now, he's going to have a a really hard time putting the cabinet together because they got, you know, you got to be confirmed. You have to have gender, racial, ethnic diversity. But if you don't, if you can't get confirmed, it doesn't do any good. Geographical. So he's, yeah. he's got a real, the way I, remember when you were a kid and it said like 20% of the air was out of basketball and they like a dent. You keep trying to push the dent out and you push another dent. And it's going to be a real chess match batch putting the convertible positions together it really is yeah I, I i think it will be i my guess is he'll do it and if if uh, history gives us any guy the republicans will find one maybe two that they'll go after or maybe one two they'll go after one they think they can reject or defeat uh, that that tends to be a pattern it's going to be even more so with mitch mcconnell you know james if he had won the way that we both kind of, kind of thought he was going to win you know maybe by 10 points 400 electoral votes carried the Senate in with him, then I don't know if he would have been, but he could have afforded, he could afford 
to be a bit more daring, a bit more bold, a bit more new, a bit more trying yeah. things, right. if you will. But when you Could have I, I, this, what he inherited, I think you're right. It's all predictable. It's all cautious. It's all competent. And I think that's what you need right now. I hope so. I mean, I think we, we hoped he'd get more electoral votes. I don't know if we thought he would, but we certainly hoped that. Well, uh, when we were talking Texas and Florida, we were up around 400. Yeah, well, yeah we, we, we were talking, but it obviously yeah. didn't work out. But we were, we were hoping. I mean, you know, hoping. But, but, it, but it, what he did was pretty impressive. And, and I talked to Chris Hutton, because what's really impressive is he won Georgia in spite of a massive, I mean, massive white turnout, white rural Georgia, too. So, uh, you know, if you come back and you look, you put this election in perspective, he, it was not a squeaker. It really was not. No, it was not. It, it, Georgia is a good news story, and we're going to talk to Chris about that and about the Senate race. James, right next door is a bad news story. Florida was, to put it mildly, a disaster for Democrats, and I'm sure there are going to be lots of recriminations uh, it was it was the uh, you know a, a, a rejection not only of Biden but they lost a couple of members of Congress they uh, lost seats in the state legislature uh, man Florida Democrats uh, you know have got uh, have got a lot of learning to do I guess in the next uh, couple of years right and look at the the massive sums of money that <clears throat> were put into Florida right. and it was in an environment where a fifteen dollar minimum wage got sixty percent of the vote. Mm-hmm. All right, so you, you can't say that's a reflexively conservative electorate. But there's something that Democrats do in Florida. And I mean, I think that, you know, Miami-Dade was just a, a, just a crushing story. And I, I think the whole defund the police might be the stupidest, most harmful slogan that anybody's come up with in modern American politics. Yeah, I, I mean, there may be competition, but I'm not quite sure what it is I'm this trying, year. I'm trying to think you know, right. And, you know, I, it's interesting. You mentioned Miami-Dade. You're so right. I, I mentioned Pinellas County in a column because I thought that's really going to be an interesting place to watch because it's got more senior citizens than I think any county in America. And Trump carried it last time, and I thought it was indicative of how seniors might go. Well, actually, seniors did go more for Democrats this time, more for Biden. Then they went uh, for Clinton last time, and Biden carried Pinellas County. But boy, it, that was swamped by what yeah. happened down south in Miami. Well, he carried Duval, which is Jacksonville. Yeah, I yeah. thought that was he carried Seminole. You know, my kind of dashboard right. counties. If you, you know, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was to play? No, you know, no, and that was a pattern in North Carolina. He carried New Hanover, which we both thought would be right. uh, the leading right. indicator, but. Uh, so there's a lot to uh, a lot to analyze uh, as we go ahead. No question, um, James. I'm going to turn to some really good questions we got. We, you know, we've got some really smart listeners, uh, and uh, we can probably learn from them. I hope they can sometimes learn from us. But uh, uh, the first one I think is relevant to what we're talking about. It's Greg, who is writing from New Lenox, Illinois. And he wants to know if you'll be able to, James, you have to take him off the ledge about Trump and others stealing this election somehow, which is my new reason he says he's taking Ambien every night. <laughs> well, I take Ambien every night. But, <laughs> so uh, do I. <laughs> yes. So just, you know, take a, a, a moderate dose. There's no, Joe Biden is going to be the president on January 20th. So 
please, there are many, many, many things to worry about between now and January 20th, and we're going to talk to Shane Harris about that. But if you want to stay up late at night worrying about what could happen in the next two months, that's probably worthy of your nervousness. Worrying about Joe Biden not being president is something not to worry about. So please, I'm not saying don't be nervous, don't be worried, but don't be worried about that. Good advice, Dr. Carville. I'm not sure, Greg, if you need to take Ambien or not, but if you, you don't need to take it because uh, if Donald Trump will right. be in office after January 20th yeah. because right. <coughs> he won't be. You know, Tom from New York City says, okay, Joe Biden has won. Well, now what? Is there a Tip O'Neill anywhere in the Republican ranks who can or will broker peace and help get things done over the next four years? The answer is no. <laughs> There's no one even close. Uh, Kevin McCarthy has uh, basically decided he's going to be a political hack as leader. And everything he does, he looks over his right shoulder because Jim Jordan is really going to be the dominant Republican, the dominant minority leader in the House. And Mitch McConnell never wants to get things done unless it means more power and money for him. So, yeah, you can put together a coalition maybe on a few issues like infrastructure. But uh, what happened back in the 80s, uh, uh, O'Neill and Reagan, and it's exaggerated somewhat today. No question. But they did do some things. After doing a really bad, big tax cut, they then went and corrected it over the next uh, three years. They later did a genuine Social Security reform uh, and did a big uh, tax reform. I I don't think that's going to happen with the current lineup in Congress. Well, I I, I don't. But, you know, there are things that people need. And, you know, Mitch McConnell and his members are going to need things. The administration is going to need things. And. You know, I, do I think it's going to be like some sweeping reform and, you know, Medicare for all or something? No. But but life goes on. And remember, we have, we're not destined to have four years of this. It might be worse, but we got an election coming up in 2022. Right. And that's going to, you know, play out pretty significantly. And, you know, the, the, the political situation, we, but the one thing we do not know is when that electoral college meets and Obviously, Biden walks out with 306 electoral votes. How much of these Republicans out there really think Trump has a chance? And how is that going to affect them? How is that going to affect Republicans in Georgia when he's beaten? I don't know. It might it might incite them more. It might come out more. It might come out less. It might not make any difference. But it's going to be a huge event. And he knows it. And, I mean, that that's the kind of definitive close to this. I mean, so you know, you don't have to wait to January 20th for the definitive close. I think it's December 14th, but I, I, I could be off a day or two. Hey, James, Jennifer from Virginia remembers everything you say. And she said that before the election, you suggested Trump would stir up his base in hopes of getting a deal on legal charges just to make it go away. Is that what's happening now? It's a good chance. I mean, he's stirring up everything. He's, he's, he's trying to leverage as much as he can. You see where... where uh, President-elect Biden said he hopes they don't really go after him. He gave, so he gave some kind of a conciliatory statement, but there you know, would be an independent Justice Department. Uh, he knows that the Manhattan DA, the New York AG, are, are you know, in close pursuit of him. Uh, he's got a lot. He's got a lot on his mind. He's got a lot to negotiate. And which I think is really kind of strange, out of character. He's not going to Mar-a-Lago for. Thanksgiving, and you know he, he there's a as somebody said on I heard on the radio history does not is not kind to autocrats who stay in bunkers. Um, 
but he he he's he's going to try to maintain his leverage in any way he can, and part of that is legal. And he's got to make decisions about pardons. I mean, he can pardon his whole family. He's got to make a decision about whether he can pardon himself or whether that'll hold up in court or not. Uh, he's got a lot on his plate. Yeah, he does a lot on his plate, and he can't he cannot pardon himself from. Uh, state crimes or the Manhattan District Attorney. So uh, a lot to play out. And we may be plea bargaining. Hey, Charles yeah, it, it, has written from right. New Zealand. I love, I love our New Zealand uh, followers. Right. Uh, wow. He said, Mitch yeah. McConnell said, if we don't do something about voting by mail, we're going to lose the ability to elect a Republican in this country. You know, I would say bullshit, but we can't say that, James. So I'll just say bunk. I mean, really, vote by mail has been done by all. The state of Utah, which is hardly a left-wing Democratic liberal bastion, does all of its vote by mail. It used to be it favored the Republicans until Trump decided in this election that somehow because of the pandemic, that if he if he trashed voting by mail, it would hurt Democrats. That's the only reason he did it. And Mitch McConnell is just parroting that. Uh, if you go and you organize and your people care, then uh, they'll vote by mail or, or they'll vote in person if we don't have a pandemic. That probably cost him Georgia. Yeah, yeah, maybe. I mean, the Secretary of State, you know, maybe Arizona too. I mean, it it was kind of weird. You know, he just he just lashes out. I don't, I don't. Sometimes I don't think he's that strategic. But I think that the he feels like the more trouble that he can cause, the better it is for his future in the Republican Party, and maybe the more promising his not very promising legal future is. Yeah, yeah. And we don't we don't know how much in addition to all of the criminal charges and he's got you know that E. Jean Carroll defamation suit is proceeding. I mean he's he's got a he's got a lot on his plate. Red case, yeah. A whole lot. Yeah, he does. You know? Uh, and pressure is is excruciating. And you know, every it's becoming evident that this is not going to work out for him. Yeah. He's showing. And that I don't know when too. he. Uh, and I think. Oh, yeah. I think Ivanka and Jared uh, are not going to be praying around New York society for the next uh, year or two. I love that story. <laughs> I, I, I do too. Hey, we we're going from New Zealand to. Are you ready? Iceland. Right, sir. Iceland. Oh my God. Yeah, uh, boy. If I, I if I foul up this name, which I will, uh, it looks like Sigurjon from Iceland says okay. that James, this is down your alley. Is the woke movement damaging the Democratic Party? And if so, what should Democrats do? Well, first of all, it is. I've said on television that these woke people need to take a nap. And it's, it's it, you know, the, this is a country that is just not a, a left-wing country. It just is not. Now, I think it's a center-left country. I could argue that this is more a Bill Clinton country, a Barack Obama country, than it is... A, a Trump country, or even George W. Bush, but it's not that. There's no evidence that they can get any votes of any substantial number outside of urban areas. And remember, the Democrats had a very clean choice to make. Bernie Sanders, who is the most disciplined candidate maybe I've ever seen, was clearly the best funded candidate in the Democratic primaries. Had the best organizations, had the most enthusiasm. And he got beat badly in the Democratic primaries. Not beat soundly, beat badly. So if you can't even 
get 30% of the Democratic Party behind you, how are you going to get 50.1% of the country behind you? I mean, this is not even a, a topic that is worth discussing. And they come back and they say the same thing. Well, you need to, you need to have more canvassing. Oh, my God. Uh, and I understand that, that they don't want to give in. They don't want to admit that they hurt the, the Biden's chances. But I think at the end of the day, a lot of that stuff came back to haunt us. And, and they used it very effectively on us. And, you know, the answer is, well, they're going to accuse you of socialism no matter what. Okay, but... Yeah, but you gave them... But, but, but know, they had particulars this time. It wasn't just... Yeah, yeah. they had some particulars right. and stuff. And, 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 and you know, and I, I, I just don't even think, in my view, this is not even a debatable question. Yeah, no, I, I, and I, I agree. It, when, when you hear them debate it, 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 they don't make any sense. James... More canvas. James, we're going to stay in Europe. Uh, Daniel from Good. the UK uh, notes... This is an interesting question. In 2020, Virginia now appears to be a bedrock blue state. Georgia voted for uh, uh, Joe Biden, but North Carolina remains purple to red. What's the difference between North Carolina and Virginia in particular? Well, first of all, Virginia has those big Washington suburbs. I mean, those that that is a huge percentage of the vote. And North Carolina doesn't really have suburbs like that or that size. I also think that it's always easy to Monday morning quarterback. Um, I think if the Democrats had put a little more resources in North Carolina, they only lost by 70, 75,000 votes, uh, probably in retrospect, a little bit less in Florida. I think they could have carried North Carolina, would have been close, and they certainly weren't helped by the uh, sexting scandal of their Senate candidate and the way he handled it. But I don't consider North Carolina a red state. They have a very good governor. My son uh, has worked for the governor, I want to point out. Uh, and uh, he won by, I think, five points. Uh, and I think they can win a Senate race there in 22 and be very competitive in the next presidential election, given the right circumstances. Well, also, Virginia has been well governed by Democrats. Yeah. I mean, Mark Warner was a really good governor. Tim Kaine was a really good governor. You know, Terry McAuliffe was a really good governor. Susan Schrecker, my old friend, but she worked for me in 1982, is the chairman of the Democratic Party of Virginia. Perhaps, along with Wisconsin, one of the two best political parties in, in state parties in the United States. And, I mean, they work hard. They raise money. You know, they, they promote people. People advance within the party. So there's also a, a, a real, you know, deep, benched in Virginia of Democrats and the, the, uh, they have the added advantage of the Republicans are, are, are really the Virginia Republicans have really been taken over by nuts. Well, so are the North Carolina so Republicans. A, I mean, they are really, uh, they are crazy. You're right, right about the governing. I mean, Jim Hunt was a great governor, but he went out of office uh, 16 years ago, I guess. In the 80s. I, and, yeah. and, and wait, no, he came back for a second time. He, he was governor for 16 right. years, two eight years since. But uh, Cooper is a very good governor. He's handled that uh, COVID-19 crisis greatly. Right. But it takes a while to build up uh, that kind of bench. But uh, I, I, would, I would be, if I'm a Democrat, I'm worried a lot about Florida. Uh, and I'm, I'm much less optimistic about Texas than we might have been uh, three weeks ago. But North, uh, North Carolina yeah, is right on that. Of all the states that Democrats lost, that should be number one on what they want to try to pick up next time. Yeah, I, I'm not quite as despondent about Florida. I think we just made some unenforced errors there. But 
We'll see. Yeah. And, you know, all of the, the things that made us optimistic about Texas are still going to be taking place in Texas. You keep I mean, waiting. Trump just got a, a Yep. I know. James, well, the final patience. question is from a professor, so it needs to go to you. It's Professor Hansfield, uh, MD from the University of Washington. And he, he this oh, is wow. something that you've noted. Democratic messaging often gets lost in the weeds. Uh, can liberal Democrats, Democrats with a capital D, forge simplistic phrases and arguments to make our case? You know, what do we need to do? What do we need to do to read? This is not his uh, question, but this is what he means. Right. How do you create? It's about the economy, stupid. You know, it, it's if you think about it, of course, Republican message is easy because it's basically turned into a personality cult. Right. Right. The, the, the problem that Democrats have is this. We are party of, of, of coalitions. And, you know, we, we we're constantly people are coming in and more enthusiastic in the coalition or, you know, even subcultures almost. And, you know, Biden didn't have particularly uh, strong messaging. I mean, he, he didn't get caught and make a lot of mistakes. Look, I think the 2018 message was just fine. It, we, you know, we focused on things that are really popular that we do, like increasing the minimum wage, like expanding health insurance, like you know, doing things about prescription drug benefits, by, by, by increasing people's uh, ability to maybe join a union. And it, I, I think Trump snuck, snickered us in to constantly talking about him. And we didn't do that in 2018. And I think a lot of people thought, well, with him on a ballot, it just you, you can't get away from talking about him. To some extent, that was true. But I, I wasn't, I've said this before, <clears throat> I love Sam Elliott. I think he's a great actor. I've actually met him before. He's, he, he's a great guy. I, did, I didn't like the, the close of this election. I, I, I think that we did not, it's hard for us to get like a, a real, you know, clear, concise message because of the nature of our coalition. But I thought 2018 was a really good message year for us. And I think we got a little bit knocked out of our yeah, game. Yeah, I know. I, I think you're right. I think in part knocked out because of the emphasis on the virus. Everything I think Joe Biden and others said is right, but it, it, it tended to sublimate some other issues. Look, that Republican yeah. coalition... It's not as diverse as the Democrats, but they have the social conservatives, they have the economic conservatives, the small town, and they're able to find issues that don't uh, offend them. I mean, the race card being one, crime uh, being another, socialism being the third. Yeah, it's, it's, it's Trump now. I mean, they don't have a core. I mean, Trump just dominates that party. Uh, uh, he's going to run for president again. And there's nobody, you know... Uh, four years and I was a long time and he might be in the penitentiary, you know, God knows what he's, he's overweight. He's in his mid seventies. I don't know. But as of right now, there is no Republican party. It is a personality code. It's what it is. And I, it, you know, it, they nail Mitch McConnell and then all they care about and legislative is getting tax breaks for, for rich people. And they'll continue to do that, but it's going to be driven into, you know, not, one of these guys that believes when Trump goes, it's, you know, they're going to be a, a real fight in the Republican Party. But I don't think it's going to be over issues. I think it's going to be over personality. Hey, this episode is brought to you by Magic Spoon. 
It's a delicious cereal that I love to wake up with in the morning. Well, I tell you something, James. My grandson, Kai, who I've been known to talk about once or twice on this show, that's what he eats for breakfast. That's about all. If he's able to come over Thanksgiving because of, you know, we're worried about that with the COVID, but if he is, we may have to serve Magic Spoon uh, instead of turkey. Well, it comes in coca, fruity, frosted, or blueberry. But my favorite right now is still blueberry. <laughs> well, I like all four, but my son told me they actually have a peanut butter. I want to try that. I love all the above, and I think I kind of go for blueberry, too. But, boy, I'd love to try the peanut butter. It's zero sugar, 11 grams of protein, and only three net carbs in each serving. It's keto-friendly. And, uh, you know, not to mention gluten, grain, soy, and GMO-free. It's the best out there. You just go to magicspoon.com slash warroom to grab a variety pack and try it today. You know, be sure and use our promo code, which is WARROOM. It's all one word uh, at checkout to get free shipping. And Magic Spoon is so confident in this product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. What that means is, if you don't like it, you can return it. That's magicspoon.com slash WARROOM and use the code WARROOM for free shipping. Again, magic. Spoon.com slash War Room. Use the code War Room and look for the link in our show notes. We thank Magic Spoon for sponsoring this podcast. Okay, James, uh, as you know, Chris Hutman uh, is encyclopedic in his knowledge of Georgia politics, which he has been uh, engaged in for some time. The center of the political universe in America and maybe the world. Uh, for the next uh, six weeks is Georgia. Two Senate races there that will determine which party controls the United States Senate. It's going to have a profound effect on policy and on Joe Biden. Chris, you've been doing this for a long time. You've never seen anything like this with the stakes so big. Conventional wisdom has been special elections or runoffs favor Republicans. Their people come out. Do you think that's true this time or is the dynamics different? Well, I think to be determined, um, the, the race that kind of set the conventional wisdom, of course, is uh, the 2008 runoff when Obama came pretty close to winning the state. And then we had a runoff, which determined basically the 60th vote in the Senate. It was Saxby Shambliss versus Jim Martin. And we lost the runoff, you know, very badly uh, a month later. And the states just changed a lot since 2008 as far as, you know, what part of the coalition for each party, uh, our likely voters, our you know surge voters. Uh, you know, our most recent experience was in, after the 2008 teen um, general election. Our Secretary of State's race was uh, the only race that the only maiden race that made it to a runoff. And obviously, uh, Stacey Abrams got about 48.9 percent in the first round, and most of the statewide you know ticket down ballot people got somewhere between 48 and 48 and a half. And we went to a runoff that year, and John Barrow, the former congressman, was running for Secretary of State. He ended up with 48.1%. So didn't do quite as well as Abrams had done in the first round, but nothing like the 2008 uh, drop-off that we had seen in prior years. So, One gets you know, the impression that each of these candidates, I mean, all four of them, uh, starts with about 48 or 49%, and you're not playing for very many persuadables here. And I'm thinking of what, I mean, Leffler and Purdue both have big ethics issues. They were, they're sure. really rich uh, people who engaged in trading, made profits during the pandemic when they had inside information. Now, you're a Democratic consultant, I know, but, 
But does it matter, or is that just does that just blow over right now? The intensity is so great on both sides. You know, normally I'm I'm one of those people that definitely still believes in persuasion and thinks that that's an important thing. But I think for this runoff, uh, it's all about turnout, and I would you know almost ignore the polling and look to kind of more objective measures like who's requested absentee ballots so far, which so far looks pretty good for our side. And also, um, to the extent that persuasion matters, I think persuasion this time is more about whether you vote or not. So there's been a couple of big changes in the Georgia electorate over the last 10 years. One of them is just the, the, the white share of the electorate continues to go down. You know, back in 2012, when Obama you know, lost by about seven or eight points to Mitt Romney, the white share of the electorate was 61 and a half percent. Uh, as of this year, it's gone down to 58. So it's down, you know, basically 3%. Um, the black share has also gone down a little. Back in 2012, it was 29.9 for Obama. Now it's 27.3. So the black and the white share have both gone down, but Asian's gone from, you know, one to 2.5%. That's a huge increase. You know, numerically, about 40,000 Asian voters voted in 2012. This year it was 125,000. So you can see that that's just a huge increase. Hispanic, same deal, 51,000 people back in 2012. Uh, earlier this month, 150,000, so three times as many. Uh, big increases in other, you know, small increases in unknown. So we've got like a different electorate than we had before. And then even within the white vote, you've got the traditional kind of Republicans that, you know, James cut his teeth running against the Johnny Isaacsons of the world back in the 90s, who were the, uh, the old school Georgia Republican Party. And just like everywhere else, like like you see in the Midwest, a lot of these white voters that voted in 2016 and 2020 are these Trump surge voters, mostly in like rural areas, people who had you know never come out before, including great Republican years like 2014. And I think the big the big question on persuasion or turnout or whatever is like, can the Republican Party of old uh, hold together with these new Trump voters and you know turn out in numbers that are sufficient? to take on what's really a unified Democratic Party on our side for the first time in a long time. Well, but, but, but also, can you turn out your voters in Gwinnett you know, that turned out for the, on November 3 and what the size of the African-American vote will be? Totally. And Gwinnett's like kind of a fascinating case study. I know James has like long been kind of very focused on, on Gwinnett. So I track every year I have a spreadsheet that I update. It's kind of got like 10 or 11 key counties in Georgia. Most of them are metro Atlanta counties, but some of them are, are, uh, are some, you know, some rural counties that are representative just to look at some, some trends. And so you had, you know, all through the 2000s, Gwinnett stuck in the mid 30s. I mean, even in, even in years that, you know, Obama was doing pretty well in the state, 44, 41, when he ran for re-election, all of a sudden Abrams getting, you know, 57 last year, Biden getting above 58 this year. But that is the one weak spot for John Barrow when he had his runoff. So Abrams got 56 and change uh, when she ran in November. And then December of that year, when they had the runoff, Barrow slipped all the way down to 50.6 in Gwinnett. And uh, so that is going to be the one place on our side where getting this new coalition out. James, why don't you... For for our listeners, they're not that familiar with Georgia. Gwinnett is adjacent to Fulton County, which is Atlanta, and it's a fast-growing and and increasingly diverse county. Would that be an accurate description of what we're talking about? Yeah, and it has a history in the state. It was kind of one of the first counties to go when Georgia went from being a solidly Democratic state to a Republican state because it was this big suburban county. 
but I'm just I'm saying we, we, we assume that everyone knows what Gwinnett County is. Sure, maybe I should make that assumption. That don't. I just wanted to, to, to get that. So if, if I came in, I, I said, Chris, uh, I got $10 million. All right. How, I, what, boy, where should I put it? What should I, what should I target? You know, where, where can I really make a difference? And I mean, one of the things that, that you, know, you and I have talked a lot, and then there was this upshot story about the, the black share. Right, the electorate being twenty-seven percent. Uh, it, it, is that accurate to your knowledge? And isn't that slightly disappointing? Weren't we kind of hoping for a bigger black share of the vote? Yeah, I mean, it's there's two ways to look at it. On the one hand, it's slightly disappointing because Democrats have always believed that the only way that we could win Georgia was to get that number higher and higher, uh, because we were constantly seeing our you know white percentage of the electorate of what we were able to get go down. But I think in some ways it's it's a little bit encouraging because even when Obama was getting you know thirty percent of the electorate is black, and when we say that we mean you know out of every hundred people that that votes, thirty of them are black. That, you know the turnout is probably seventy five, but it, that's right. that's what we mean. Um, you know, and but Obama was maxing out at forty seven, forty six right. around there. And now you, what you're seeing is in a more diverse electorate where a lot of the increase is actually coming from non black and non white, so Asian, Hispanic, other, et cetera. Um, so yeah, I think there's room to you know potentially improve that, but the way that you're going to improve that number um, is through attrition elsewhere. I mean, you still did have a record, you know, r- raw numerical turnout of black voters and and basically everybody else. But so I think if if you've got ten million dollars, it's a combination of you know getting this rising American electorate in places like Gwinnett back out to the polls, and it's you know getting the negative message out about Purdue and Leffler to some of these Trump, you know, white surge voters that basically, you know, whatever you liked about Trump that you don't really like about these people. And I think there's a decent amount in their backgrounds to that you can make that case. Okay. So what is going to, this is, the, to me, this is the question. So on December 14th, it's going to be evident. I mean, some of these hardcore Trump people think he still has a chance and he's going to pull it out. And of course, we know no such thing is going to happen. And it's going to be rather definitive. It, what, what effect? And we, I'm just I'm trying to figure out what effect is that going to have? Because he had an enormous turnout among base Republicans, you know, all over Georgia. I mean, if the white turnout was it, the fact that Biden won the state by stand up what like twelve thousand twelve thousand votes with that level of of, of turnout is, yep. is amazing. But what do you think is going to be the effect of him? being defeated and him not on the ballot and, you know, Purdue and uh, Leffler getting, you know, clobbered on, on TV for insider trading and being, you know, corporate Republicans and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Is there some, is, is there some hope that that can work? Well, you know, in the 2018 general election, you saw really a, a very Trump-esque turnout on both sides. You know, Brian Kemp for all of his shortcomings has a has an appeal that's very similar to, to Trump's and he was able to kind of match turnout. Um yeah, obviously Abrams did a great job of turning out people on our side, but you know, almost not quite to a one to one basis, but he was able to turn people out. And I think in the twenty eighteen runoff when you saw turnout go down a lot on both sides, you saw it recede both, you know, a little bit with our people. The black share of the electorate was a little lower, although it was slightly higher than what it was in twenty twenty. And, you know, you saw in some of the rural counties, 
the Republican share of the vote recede a little bit. So when I say that, I mean, you know, instead of getting 14%, Barrow was getting 17 or 18%. What really made the difference that in that runoff was just the this rising American electorate really not coming back in places like Gwinnett. Um, I think it's a real open question, you know, what these people do. And I also think that um, the Republicans are playing with fire a little bit because I do think you know, Georgia is probably percentage-wise has probably more never Trumpers than almost any other state. We've got these, you know, northern suburbs that were long represented by the Johnny Isaacsons of the world that were never really, you know, super conservative, but they were also they were always just very Republican. And those places have just really turned on Trump. And I think there are people, you know, in that coalition that were kind of hoping if Biden won, and a lot of these people voted for Biden, but also for David Perdue um, in those northern counties that maybe sanity would return. And I think they're looking at how Purdue and Leffler have basically pledged allegiance to Trump and maybe thinking, well, I'm not sure that sanity will return. So I think like there's an opportunity for Ossoff and Warnock to go after, you know, some of those people who were hoping that a, that a kind of traditional Republican party would return and basically say, now the job's still not done and we actually do need your vote this time again. Maybe in 2022, it'll be back to normal, but it's not there yet. Okay. Well, Chris, Carl Rove apparently is going to be directing these two, two campaigns. It means, it means it's going to get down and dirty. We know the race card's going to be pulled. Purdue already played the anti-Jewish card uh, in the first go-round. Are the Democrats ready for this? Can they counter? Uh, yeah, I think they are. I mean, they've got a lot of dirt on uh, Purdue and Leffler. And, um, you know, Leffler is kind of a kind of a fascinating case study. You know, she emerged to the second round based on, you know, just using her personal fortune to drown out um, her Republican opponent who actually was kind of more in line with what the base actually wants. But she probably outspent him at least 10 to 1. And she and her husband were funding a lot of outside expenditure. You know, a lot of independent expenditures were being funded by them as well. So it's like all the spending was very, you know, not legally coordinated, but basically she got anything she needed. There's not a lot of evidence I've seen from any polling that she's actually popular with the full electorate. Um, and so there's a lot there. And her, her, to, the, to the extent that her negatives have been explored so far, they've mostly really been explored in the context of a Republican primary because, you know, we, we were in the midst of this jungle primary. So just because, you know, Collins, who was her main Republican opponent, took some shots at her doesn't necessarily mean that the electorate that that we care about now, you know, was paying attention or that it was relevant to them. So I, yeah, I think you're going to see just a really ugly, um, a really ugly, uh, you know, environment on both sides. And I will say one thing about some of the attacks on Warnock. You know, they I do think they need to be careful because we we are sitting on a potential cache of you know black voters who could you know reengage, and the fact that they're already starting to go after him on, you know, Jeremiah Wright type stuff and things that he's done in the pulpit, et cetera, um, could actually backfire in some ways. I mean, I think that this is, this is the problem that a lot of Republicans are going to have is that sure. Trump did a little better with the black vote than maybe some Republicans in the past have done, but their playbook isn't really compatible with that going forward. And so I think this is going to be a good test to see how they navigate that, you know, their propaganda about how great they're doing with black voters versus look what they say. Let me ask you three people if they'll they'll come in and will it matter? Barack Obama, Joe Biden, and Donald Trump. Barack Obama, I think a great surrogate, probably the number one surrogate that you want. Um, you know, he's divorced enough from the current action, and he's obviously very popular with uh, 
with black voters and and there's some some real evidence that he's popular with the kind of black voters that we've had trouble with so it's kind of more rural more uh you know conservative um you know have still have a good impression of him i think you know him standing on stage with warnock and ossoff very powerful good way to good way to juice turnout Biden, um, you know, probably helpful, but uh, he's got a lot on his plate with the transition stuff. You know, I'm not, I'm not sure how that politics plays into, you know, whatever else, because there's obviously still the the question mark of, you know, are they going to pass any stimulus or anything like that between now and then? What's going on with the transition? Trump, I think, is the wild card because, sure, he comes in and he tells those rural Georgians, you know, what's on the line and maybe they, you know, vote as well, but he's also been attacking the Republican Secretary of State, the Republican Attorney General, the Republican Governor. I'm just, it's to me that's much more of a question mark. If you're if you're David Perdue or Kelly Loeffler, you probably want Trump to come into the state, but you probably don't want WSB, the big Atlanta TV station, to cover it. You just want it to be covered by the outmarket stations. Right, James, James Carbone, kind of hard to do. Uh, yeah, so when Loeffler was appointed, all right. It was some. It was kind of a big. Doug Collins wanted it. I think Newt Gingrich's daughter was really in the running, and this was considered kind of a surprise appointment. And what my friends in George were saying, well, Kemp recognizes the party needs some suburban appeal, and she's kind of moderate. Uh, you know, kind of the future way the Republicans can sort of stop the hemorrhaging. Was that your view? When she, were you surprised by her appointment? Uh, did you see this coming? And what do you think is was behind it? Because it did seem a little out of the box. It was a little surprising, and she definitely leapfrogged some some other people. You know, legislators, maybe people that were had been elected at the county or local level that might have made a little more sense. Obviously, I think the fact that she brought her checkbook with her and said, "I can fund you know this race and other races," and you know, one thing that you have to remember is that this is a special election. The seat's up again in 2022 when Kemp is up. So I think he's looking at it as, well, not only can I try to win this year, but I'll have a big spender who can help me in 2022. I think the problem with the execution of, I think the theory is great, which is that we that if you're Kemp, you're looking at, you know, getting clobbered in the Atlanta suburbs, which was historically the party's base, saying I need to have a, you know, white female moderate, you know, back on top of the ticket to help me with those right. people. The execution's just been a, a real head scratcher. I mean, she's anti Black Lives Matter. She's anti cancel culture. She's you right. know, flirting with QAnon. I mean, it just it that seems like they've lost the plot. It seems like they had a decent plot, but they've lost it. Right. It was, she was kind of friendly with, with Stacey yeah, Abrams. Pictures. Well, she owns a WNBA team. Yeah. I, I mean, that, that, you know, and right. And as I like to tell, which is so you know, and she, she basically says, "Yeah, I'm just gushing off the top of my head." <laughs> she basically says, "Well, look how liberal this WNBA team has gotten." And it's like, mm, when did you know? It's not like you bought it in 1940, and the WNBA has changed. <laughs> she pretty much knew what she was getting into. And you read all these like really sad profiles where. You know, she was very into the team. She had all the players over to dinner, and now she's playing this basically anti-Black Lives Matter, you know, QAnon flirter. And you wonder, like, you know, she's really sold herself out for this seat. And I think a lot of voters can kind of see right through that. So, uh, on the whole, do you think it's it's advantageous? Uh, what what it, to go back to Albert's question? Uh, Trump coming into the state, obviously, the Atlanta TV stations are going to show up wherever he shows up. I mean, he can't. <laughs> You know that that that's not going to happen. You know, if you're you're sitting there Saturday before the Tuesday election, and and you're Warnock, 
you know, Osrob, and they say Trump is coming in. What's your reaction? What do you think the reaction would be at that at that point? Hmm. You probably don't want it at the end of the day. Uh, that close. I've seen election, him move votes in Alabama, point, and I've seen him move votes the, in Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the uh, the real wild card is these these Northern Atlanta Republican these you know these never Trump Republicans that a lot of them did vote for Biden and and then also voted for Purdue this time. Um, you know, right. if you're I guess if you're Ossoff and Warnock, you look at that and you say, hopefully, hopefully there's more for them to lose than there is to gain. Right. All right, Albert? Well, it, it'll be the next seven weeks. Uh, it's the political universe. Uh, it's the political center of the universe, Chris. And we thank you for enlightening us on it. And uh, we'll keep following you from now until January 6th. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, you will, uh, I, we'll talk later today, I'm sure. But, but I knew you would be a great guest, uh, Chris. And I think our listeners are got a, a really good insight into into Georgia, and, and uh, this is everything that I, I hoped for and wanted in this interview. So thank you very much. Glad we'll I can help. probably have you back on sometimes before we go to post here, because it's got... Thank you, man. Appreciate thank it. You. Thanks, guys. Hey, James, you know, you counsel me almost every day. Don't get agitated over any Trump stories. Only it's going to get worse the next day. But even... Even with that climate, the Washington Post, Shane Harris story last week, <clears throat> that intelligence officials, now, now, now listen to this, were worried that ex-President Trump could compromise, I don't know, maybe even sell sensitive American secrets and techniques. I, it was a shocker. You wanted to reread it the second time because it was just so stunning. Uh, Shane is a senior national security reporter for the Post. Uh, a book author, a foremost journalist on surveillance and intelligence. And Shane, it's always good to welcome a fellow Wake Forester to the program. And congratulations on that big story. But tell us how big a deal this is. Well, I think it's a very big deal. And like so many things in the Trump administration, I mean, it's a novel dilemma that this one presents. We don't normally think about ex-presidents who have access to, I mean, literally all the secret information that they want as, as posing a risk of divulging it when they leave office. Uh, but here we have a president who, you know, and this isn't speculative, has a documented track record of disclosing classified information while he's been in office, sometimes for apparent political gains, sometimes apparently just inadvertently. Uh, and so a lot of people who I talk to are are genuinely worried that he will through some slip of the tongue, or perhaps worse, while he's uh, no longer in office, reveal things that need to be properly kept secret, including potentially really sensitive information. Well, you quote one intelligence official as noting uh, that he is deeply in debt, he's bitter about losing, he's unhinged personally. That is, this official worries, the profile of a prescription for disaster. That's right. I mean, and I think, and if you just think of it another way, if Donald Trump were an ordinary citizen and were applying for a job at the CIA that required a security clearance, uh, I'm confident he would not get a clearance. Uh, given his financial problems, uh, even if they were a fraction of the kind of debt that he's in, would be a red flag. And, and plus, just I mean, the you know the the hostility he's openly expressed to the intelligence community, the kind of the conspiracy theories. He just he he is not somebody who would be 
qualified for getting authorization to to national secrets. Now, because he's the president, that's different, obviously. The president, by virtue of being elected, kind of is the security clearance ultimately in government. But it it is striking that he has these kinds of red flags on his record that otherwise would prevent him from getting access to this stuff. Shane, the saving grace, uh, Jack Goldsmith, a former Bush Justice Department official, says in your extraordinary story uh, that that Trump is so substantively lazy, he doesn't even delve into his daily intelligence brief, that he may not know or remember uh, as much as someone else. That's right. And I think Jack echoed the, you know, the, the, the thought of a lot of other intelligence professionals, too, these presidential daily briefings that we you know we hear so much about, including right now, because President-elect Biden is not getting them. Um, you know, they can range from being sort of you know deeply substantive and in the weeds to kind of more high level. Trumps tend to be a little bit more of the latter. But you know, famously, I've talked to people who've been involved in the briefings with him. You know, he he doesn't pay a lot of attention. He doesn't ask a lot of follow-up questions. So <clears throat> there's a decent chance that just from the sort of the day-to-day interaction with the briefing material he maybe hasn't absorbed a lot. That said, there's a lot of stuff he would know. I mean, particularly when it comes to processes and procedures, you know, what is the, what are the steps we go to to launch the nuclear missiles? You know, where do we have, uh, what countries maybe do we have intelligence assets deployed in? Uh, so it, that kind of, you know, procedural stuff or things he may have picked up along the way. But I do think it's, it's important to keep in mind that this is not somebody who has engaged with intelligence in a sophisticated way in four years. And that ultimately does provide some defense. James. So it, it, uh, it's all, he blabbed about a new weapon system mm-hmm. he had. Mm-hmm. I mean, he I mean he he remembers that kind of stuff. I mean, he likes to play, you know, soldier kind of thing. And I don't I don't think there's much doubt that that he remembers that, and there's not much doubt that the Chinese or the Russians or the Saudis would be highly interested in in, in something like that. The, the other question here is how much. Is Jared privy to this information? So Jared has access, we know, from reporting <clears throat> to the presidential daily briefing, which is not untypical for other, you know, senior White House officials or cabinet secretaries to get it, right. as you know. Um, uh, in this case, he does have a security clearance, but only after his father intervened, his father-in-law, to get him one because the CIA right. holds that clearance and Jared couldn't pass the test, basically, of the background check. So, you know, Trump forced John Kelly to go in and get it done for him. Now, interestingly, Jared, just like any other former government employee, when he leaves, will have to sign a non-disclosure agreement that says you can't reveal anything you may have learned that is properly classified in the course of your duties. Ivanka will have to sign the same thing because she has a clearance. Um, the president will not. But the, the, a lot of people pointed out to me, you know, that, and I, we didn't get into this too much in the story at all, but, you know, Jared is somebody who I think probably does have a more sophisticated understanding of this information. Uh, and, and also, I think, for some of the same reasons, has to at least, you know, in theory, pose uh, a similar security risk. But he will be reminded of his obligations and the penalties of it uh, in a way that his father-in-law will not when he leaves office. But but he could refresh his sure. father-in-law's memory. Sure. <laughs> is what is, is yeah. the point. I mean, he doesn't have to, like, you know get on the phone with the cutout of, you know, the KGB, but he can start. Now, this is kind of a technical question. The presidential daily brief, is it just like, was it one thing in a computer and that's it? Or 
Could Jared possibly have copies of it or Trump? But what happens to it after the, the, the briefing? Does it just evaporate into cyberspace? Well, traditionally, or what? what happens is is they get it, and then <clears throat> you know, in the case of anyone other than the president, there'll be somebody who actually lets them read it, and then they'll, they should take the copy back uh, to to the intelligence community. Okay. So it wouldn't be left with him. Now, would that stop him from writing something down or remembering something? No, obviously not. Right. Yeah. And, and Jared is privy to this, and his memory is much clearer than, than, than President Trump's. Is there any chance, and this is a kind of far-fetched, but I've asked you to respond to it, that, that the intelligence community would go get a, a, a FISA warrant to see if they're really, if they if they're in danger of, of giving the country secrets? Well, the only way— I mean— well, I, it, I would say there's a chance, but they, this, you'd have to meet a few conditions first. I mean, one would be they would have to— have a reasonable basis to believe that Jared or whomever was acting as an agent of a foreign power. Now, in the scenarios we're talking about, that may not be so far-fetched if we're talking about somebody actually selling information, and you'd have to demonstrate that there was an intelligence value to it. Then, though, you get into this just, again, novel and extraordinary area of are you actually going to start monitoring for intelligence purposes a former president? Um, I think by the time we even got to the point where they were contemplating a FISA request, something so dramatic uh, would have happened that there might be all kinds of other defensive measures put in place. But, you know, the straightforward answer to your question is is yes, in theory. Shane, Shane, you and Phil Rucker wrote a piece a couple weeks ago that said that Putin has just made out terrifically the last three or four years. Trump has been a gift to him. Now, I'm connecting some dots here that may or may not be connectable. But Bob Woodward, as you know, reported that Trump's former uh, director of national intelligence, Dan Coates, still had Coates still had suspicions, not proof, but suspicions that the Russians may have something on Trump. Do some of your sources think that? They do. And, and it is it is remarkable that, you know, here as we approach the end of you know Trump's four years in office, there are still these unanswered and open questions about his relationship with Russia and more importantly, his business dealings in Russia. Um, you know, we know that the Mueller investigation, you know, deliberately didn't delve into the president's finances. Had they, would they have found answers to some of these questions? It's possible. But this is something that still lingers out there and, and people wonder about because, you know, it is one explanation for his, you know, obsequious positioning and behavior towards Putin all of these years, uh, despite all of the reasons that he should not be treating him as a friend. So that, I think, kind of compounds some of the anxiety here as well. I mean, just in, you know, in, in talking through with sources, I mean, you know, plausible scenarios, I said, look, could Trump somehow implicitly or explicitly trade national security information for a building permit in Moscow. This didn't strike people as far-fetched. I mean, these are the kind of things that you would worry about, particularly when he's someone who's tried to do business in that country before and has expressed so much uh, you know, admiration for the president. Wow. And we mentioned Dan Coates a minute ago, who I think was was, was genuinely respected uh, in, in much of the intelligence community. Correct me if I'm wrong. The same can't be said for the current DNI director, John Radcliffe. Kenneth, how much damage is he doing? Yeah, you're right about Dan Coates. I mean, somebody who didn't have a, a strong, you know, a deep, deep background in national intelligence, but respected nonetheless, and seen, I think, as a statesman, a uh, former ambassador to Germany, of course. John Radcliffe is viewed, I think, almost universally as, as anything but. I mean, someone who is 
Very much. And, you know, it saddens a lot of my sources to say it, but seen as just kind of a political henchman who is there doing the bidding of the president is not fulfilling the, the job of speaking truth to power, which is the ethos of the intelligence community. And people think he's done some real damage in the way that he has pushed to declassify information from the probe of Russian interference in the 2016 election. I should say selectively declassify that information and push it into the public domain in a way that I think objectively can be seen as trying to uh, you know, prove the president's narrative that there was some kind of conspiracy against him by the intelligence community and that the Russia in, uh, interference in the 2016 elections was concocted somehow. Uh, you know, Ratcliffe has been a leading force in doing that. Uh, and, and it's really, I mean, when, it, when, I, when I talk to sources, you know, they kind of already hold Ratcliffe out as the example of what you absolutely do not want in somebody in that position. So At the same time, it's not surprising to them. Well, Joe Biden will correct that. I'm confident he'll change the policies. Do you have any sense of, of you know, the people he's going to put at DNI at CIA? Uh, could he keep Gina Haspel? I doubt that he'll keep Gina Haspel, and I don't know that Gina Haspel wants to stay past the Trump administration. I think she's signaled that she's she's ready to retire for a long career. The two names that it's really come down to at this point for who would take over at CIA and DNI are Michael Morell, uh, who was formerly the deputy director at CIA, career intelligence officer and analyst, was the acting director for a period of time, uh, and a woman named Avril Haines, who was the deputy CIA director and also the deputy national security advisor in the Obama White House. So right now, kind of in the parlor game, it looks like Morell at CIA and Haines at DNI, or maybe switching those two. But it gives you a sense of where Biden is going, which is to say people with you know deep experience who've held managerial positions at the top of the community before, uh, in Morell's case, you know, a career officer who is widely respected in the agency, and I think would be seen as not at all disruptive. Uh, in the case of Avril Haines, you know, highly competent, you know, quite brilliant national security professional who's managed big operations before. So he's he's going to the A list here. Good, James. Yeah, Shane. The, the, you, how, how many years have you covered? these kinds of issues, national defense, security, intelligence, et cetera. So just give us some idea. You, sure, sure. I started covering this pretty much after 9-11. So what that puts us at about 19, 20 years now. So, so 19, yeah. 20 years. All right. You, you wrote a story, and I just want to be very clear what it is. You had, I think, six or seven on-the-record pretty impressive sources saying there's a genuine worry in the intelligence community that the president might sell the nation's secrets. That's the upshot. That's of the correct. Story, correct. Okay. That that's like yeah. breathtaking. All right. I just wanted to make sure that our listeners heard exactly that a you know a highly experienced, highly sourced journalist had on the record names. All right. Not not speaking on the background for fear of retribution, but names of of, of really senior people. But how big of a morale crisis is the new DNI or CIA? director going to face it, it, it must have been hell if you like your whole life has been in intelligence and, and you know you've done all of this this must have been just a miserable four years yeah it has been for a lot of people in the community and <clears throat> and you've seen people 
you know, driven to do things that they never would have done, contemplated doing. I mean, former CIA directors coming out and speaking out against the president, you know, uh, uh, career CIA officers in some cases being quoted now as critiquing the current, you know, DNI on the record. So people who just don't get into the fray at all. Uh, when they, you know, and I think that that's a measure of of how the morale has kind of hit rock bottom, and 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 really the way that career intelligence community officials believe there's been a genuine crisis in the community, really since the president took office. And we remember, you know, his first official stop in Washington the day after inauguration was he stood in front of the memorial wall at CIA headquarters in that kind of solemn marble lobby with the stars representing officers in the line of duty who had died behind him. And he bragged about his crowd size. That set the tone. I mean, I remember sitting there watching that, getting you know, my phone just blowing up with text messages from sources who couldn't believe what they were seeing, that he turned, you know, basically their version of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier or whatever appropriate memorial uh, into a political prop. That set the tone. That tells you where morale has been for a long time. They see now, I think, though, um, with the Biden administration coming in as really kind of, you know, very, very hopeful, particularly if someone like Mike Morrell takes over at the CIA and there are really kind of, you know, professionals back in charge. But there's going to be some digging out to do. I mean, this has been, you know, four years don't just, you know, evaporate overnight. Uh, and I think you've seen a lot of good people leave during the Trump administration. There have been some really top-notch experts on Russia in particular who've left. Uh, I know people who said that they were not staying if he was reelected. So the morale crisis will start to abate pretty dramatically, but it's not cured, I think. So, one more thing, and I'll turn it back over to Al. This meeting he had, I think, in Helsinki with mm-hmm. Putin, that he, like, kicked everybody out the room. Is there genuine concern? Or is there real curiosity in, in that world as to what possibly went down there or what could have gone down? Because it, it just is fitting here as civilian, and I don't know, you know, it, it, during the Clinton administration, that was a different part of the world that the political people just didn't occupy. So I, I'm not... I, I, Newton, I don't know if I'm friends are CIA agents, but it, was that a disgust in the, in, in the intelligence community about what could have happened during that meeting? Because it did seem a little odd. Absolutely. Me. And a meeting, a similar meeting that happened in Hamburg as well, uh, where, you know, basically there was nobody in the room. And I think in the Hamburg case, I may be wrong on uh, whether it was this or Helsinki, the, 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 the president actually wanted the notes taken away from the interpreter. Um, <clears throat> that has, you know, fueled suspicion, understandably so, ever since. And we've never really gotten to the bottom of that, uh, you know, why a president would need to be in a room alone without his aides around him is just perplexed people. And, and again, it deeply worries them. And, th- you know, those questions aren't going to go away. And I, and, I, and I think that if the president, as a former president, starts traveling abroad, and particularly if he decides to go to Russia and, and, and sort of have meetings there, you're going to see that all come back up again and the, and those kind of lingering suspicions come to the fore. Um, and, and I should say, too, and these are things that just to underscore it, career intelligence officials never imagined even having to contemplate about a sitting president. The idea that he would want to have a meeting that was so private that even his close aides didn't know what was said in a room with the Russian president. It's just it's it, it was baffling and it remains so. Well, it sure does. And I would I think you're right to put that at the top of the list. I also would watch carefully about Jared Kushner traveling to Saudi Arabia mm-hmm. um, uh, and what would come of that. Boy, Shane Harris, this has been just a fascinating 
uh, session. Uh, you have enlightened oh, us. This is such a big, big story, and you are such a great reporter. <clears throat> I give the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal and Time and those other places credit, but I also want to credit your alma mater and my alma mater, Wake Forest. <laughs> You did us proud, Shane. Go Deeks. Thanks, Al. Thanks, James. <laughs> hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. Remember to email your questions to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Thank you for subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show. Send your questions in as we continue our war room planning for 2021. Be safe.